Blog Talk Radio. September 27th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an American exceptionalist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and welcome to everyone who's joining me over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. I see we've got Luca, Rob, Roger, Selfishness, Harry was in there, new, a new listener, I think, or at least a new chat room participant had asked a question earlier and a little off topic question. Why don't I go ahead and just tell you at the very beginning, I don't know the answer to this question. Harry in the chat room over here at blog talk asks whether I know what Ayn Rand's views on art deco were. And I do not someone who might know if you could contact Jennifer Woodson at the Ayn Rand Institute. She works with the archives and stuff. And Jeff Britting is another one who might know something like that. So that's my reference for you. If I don't know it, sometimes I can tell you what person to ask at least. Justine, hi, welcome there in the chat room. So welcome everyone. And if you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, like always, you can check out program notes. Today, not a very clever title, just recent privacy rulings and other good news. As I said last time at the end of the last show, I wanted to focus on things that were a little more positive today. We do have the obligatory things that we have to talk about in terms of Trump and Congress, but we're going to keep that minimal if we can. I've been sort of mentally in my own little world of of, uh, health research, and so I'm going to share a little bit of what I've learned about that at the beginning as well, and it's going to be sort of along the lines of, look, they're not going to repeal Obamacare anytime soon. And let me tell you my my health journey a little bit. The good news, so if anybody was worried, oh, my gosh, you know, she's got some condition and it's progressing. From what I've learned, my stupid Hashimoto's is not progressing. I'm actually doing okay with it. And I've gained some more information that explains what might have been going on with me. And so I get to make a simple change and improve. That's the hope. So uh, that's all exciting. Like I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. You'll see all the different program notes that I've got planned for today. We are going to talk about privacy, a an exciting recent ruling, and then also the upcoming Carpenter case. We could talk a little bit about a, a friend of the court brief that Verizon and some other tech companies have joined in. So we'll talk about those things as well. A little smattering of, of various things and, and a little bit self-indulgent show. You know, I feel kind of like it's a Friday. So 
this Friday, I'm not doing a show. I've told you guys about that before. I've got a family obligation on Friday that I can't get out of. So I'm not going to have a show this Friday. So this is sort of the, the Friday show. And I do, I feel a little bit kind of like I'm about to go on vacation or something after this show. I've just got that sort of self-indulgent frame of mind. Uh, nonetheless, I've got some interesting things that I want to talk about with you today. So I want to give you guys some value as I always do. This little break that I'm taking on Friday is going to give those of you who are behind a chance to catch up, regardless of whether you agree with my criticisms of Trump or anything else. I'm convinced that any show that I've done in the past couple of weeks or so is worth you going back and catching up and listening to. So go ahead and check those out while I'm gone and, and catch up. And then I'll be back on Monday. So that's sort of the housekeeping. Let's go over. As I said, the news is, is that the Republicans are not going to vote on the so-called repeal bill. I, you know, I love a lot of the headlines out there of saying, oh, they're not going to vote on the repeal bill, the repeal bill, this, the repeal bill, that. That bill, the Graham Cassidy bill, was not repealing Obamacare. If anything, it was entrenching the march toward socialized medicine. And it was, yeah, it was going to do it in a different way. They were going to do block grants to the states. But as I talked about last time, there was a whole bunch of junk in there. So, you know, what, what's really bad is that they are not actually repealing Obamacare. The fact that this particular Graham-Cassidy bill didn't pass, it's hard to say whether that's a, a bad thing or not. Some people thought, oh, you put this in and then it's going to open the way for more changes in the future. Really hard to say. And if you are further entrenching this march towards socialized medicine under a Republican president in a House and a Senate, I don't think that that has good implications long-term either. The biggest thing that I was getting upset about last time was that in the latest version that I'd heard about with the Graham-Cassidy, they were going to further reward the early eager adopters of the Medicaid expansion. So people like Kasich and Christie and, and stuff who just, you know, adopted that Medicaid expansion, took the so-called federal money, which means took money from all the other states, used it toward their own state budgets, and then went out and campaigned on the fact that they were so great that they had these balanced budgets or great budgets or reduced deficits or whatever the hell it was that they, you know, they fudged the numbers and gave you numbers. The only reason they were going to make, you know, able to make any brag about their budgets was because they took all this federal money under the Medicaid expansion. It's, it was really revulsifying. And the idea of rewarding those type of scumbags even more was, I was pretty sick about it on, on Wednesday. So am I really upset about this? Not really. I mean, the thing to be upset about is that despite all the Republicans saying, look, no Republican ever supported Obamacare. We were against it. We opposed it. They are not repealing it. So they're, you know, talking about, oh, we don't blame us because we didn't pass it. Sorry, you had the chance to repeal this. Just get rid of this sucker and they didn't do it. They did not do it. I, I don't know if my sense of humor is just a little too quirky or not. Before, when they were still deciding whether they were going to support this or not, whether they had the votes, so to speak, it came to mind to me that if you were a thoughtful senator trying to figure out whether you should vote for this vile piece of legislation, and it, it is vile because it's 
it's full of disgusting compromises and, you know, um, pork and, like I said, rewards for early adopters of socialism and all that. If you're sitting there thinking about, okay, do we keep Obamacare as it is or are we to go for the Graham-Cassidy it is very similar to this thing that they te- teach you about in philosophy. If you even in intro philosophy classes, you may you might have learned about this called the trolley problem. Just go Google trolley problem. Wikipedia will explain to you what it is. But they actually present this to you in philosophy classes as an exercise in moral reasoning, and you're supposed to decide whether you want to flip a switch on a uh, you know, on a, like a, a trolley track. And if you flip the switch, then you're going to move the trolley. It's on one track where it's going to go. And I think if it keeps going down that track, it's going to hit five people. And then if you, you know, flip the switch, then it's going to go and like hit a different person and kill that other person. And you're supposed to make this choice. And then the idea is if you actually flip that switch, then in a way you're sort of responsible for killing that other person. But anyway, point being, with this, if they people vote for Graham Cassidy, they put Graham Cassidy in, it's just going to point the government gun in a different way, right? And it's not, as far as I can tell, it would not slow the march towards socialized medicine. If anything, like I said, it was going to entrench and reward that Medicaid expansion, which I see as the Trojan horse and all this, that is enrolling more and more people onto the single-payer system. So am I too upset about this? No. It's ridiculous. The Republicans are full of garbage. And unfortunately, our president isn't much better because, you know, he had said out there he would vote, he would only, excuse me, he would only sign a piece of legislation that included coverage so-called coverage for pre-existing conditions. So what's going to happen as far as we know, Obamacare is going to collapse under its own weight. The Democrats are going to call for single payer to the rescue. And I would predict that under Trump, there's a good chance that we are going to have that. So how do we survive under that? The interesting thing, you know, doctors are just having the the hardest time in the world. And like I said, I've been immersed in research just because of my own stupid Hashimoto's condition. And I stumbled upon this blog and I put the blog in the program notes. The way I found this blog is because I was looking uh, for any evidence that this drug that a lot of people talk about, it's called low-dose naltrexone. I was looking for actual evidence that it would help my condition. And I stumbled upon a blog post by this doctor. The blog, for those of you who, I don't know, you guys don't like to go visit my blog. Go visit my blog at don'tletitgo.com. I know a lot more people listen to the show than visit the blog based on stats. Uh, Check out the blog. It's got the, the fun program notes, and I think you'll enjoy it. At the end, I don't always get to talk about it, but pretty much at the end of every single set of program notes, I put a little musical selection to check out. Today, it's Katy Perry. It's not anything super exciting and new and interesting, but sometimes it'll be something new and interesting to you that you're going to see at the end of those notes. I don't always get a chance to, to get to everything, but anyway, go over there. The blog that I'm referring you to is called Hormones Demystified. And it's of recent origin, as far as I could tell, it's March of this year or something, that this doctor, an endocrinologist, 
started blogging. And I think this person's a female, I don't know, go anonymous. And uh, this doctor writes really clearly, very no-nonsense, fun sense of humor, and has helped me personally in terms of a couple of the blog posts just wade through so much of the misinformation about thyroid conditions are out there. Because this is the thing that's happened, right? Thyroid conditions are super, super common, super common. And even my condition, Hashimoto's, which is this autoimmune thyroid condition, is a fairly common condition. And what that means is that there's a huge market. And then there's all these gurus who are just rushing in because there's this huge market. There's a whole bunch of people. Some of them are probably very well-meaning and maybe they think they have the right answers, but the amount of information and misinformation and just arbitrary assertions that you have to wade through. And let me just, for people who haven't heard me talk about this issue before, an arbitrary assertion, somebody just says, oh, it's possible that such and such might help you. So it's possible that this low-dose naltrexone or whatever might help me. But they don't offer any evidence in support of exactly why it is that it's going to help you. There's no studies, certainly not a double-blind study with enough statistically you know, significant numbers to you know, give me any confidence. It's just not out there. And like I said, that's how I stumbled across this. This doctor, very no-nonsense, very clear if you have any thyroid issues, if anybody you know has any thyroid issues, I highly recommend looking at this at least in addition to all the other gurus. That Wentz book that I linked to a couple blog posts ago, I'm highly skeptical about some of the, you know, the value of some of the stuff in there in light of what I'm seeing here. And, you know, just to give you one little tiny bit of information because I know at least two people who have thyroid conditions, a couple of different friends of mine who have been taking the wrong drug, like I've been taking the wrong drug. There's a lot of people who think quote natural is better. And so they are taking some sort of version of what they call a pig desiccated pig thyroid or something. And the idea is that it's a natural product, you know, it's from pig thyroid and it's got a combination of the two main thyroid hormones, T3 and T4. I don't want to have you guys bored and tune out. I can do this stuff for hours, but I've got the condition. You guys don't have the condition. You're not motivated like I am. Anyway, there are these two hormones. And everybody thinks, oh, well, if you take the natural thyroid and it's got these two, then maybe you're just helping yourself. But it turns out that if you take this, T3 in your supplement and not just the T4, the T3 can kind of mess you up. It gives you kind of this rush and then you like have a plummet later, you know, so you could have a pile of energy in the morning and then like crash out in the afternoon and it can cause heart palpitations and all this stuff, right? So there are a lot of people who are taking this stuff and there are some people who just order it mail order online and they don't even know exactly how much of this stuff that they're taking, but it's natural. And they just eat this stuff, they this pig, thyroid, whatever, and they think that they're doing well for their body. And in fact, they might be making themselves more sick. This is what I learned from this blog. So 
I'm actually thinking I'm going to try to see if I can get this doctor as a guest. He or she, I think it's a woman, offers herself as a podcast guest and stuff. So I'm going to see if I can have her on. She just sounds awesome. So objective and reasonable, you know, willing to consider. So the whole post on low-dose naltrexone talking about, you know, how it possibly might work, but there's not really any evidence and all this. Very rational just a, it's just a breath of fresh air to have that kind of perspective. One thing I wanted to point you to, and of course I was interested in this from the perspective of the march towards socialized medicine, is I'm calling her she. I don't know, like I said, I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. Just calls herself HD. Top five reasons why your doctor is quitting. Top five reasons why your doctor is quitting is one of the blog posts, and. A number of the things that in actually she doesn't have any sort of political axe to grind. She seems either a little bit liberal or non-committal about the march towards socialized medicine. What she is experiencing is that the practice of medicine is highly bureaucratic and that the incentives are completely screwed up because the company that she's working for, you know, I don't know where she she doesn't say where she practices, nothing. I don't know where she is. I would go to her tomorrow, right, if I could find her. Uh, but, you know, she talks about the fact that they're always trying to sort of squeeze more work out of the doctors to get more money and all this stuff. And you and I know, as people who understand interventions in a free market, that all of this is due to government intervention. But this doctor, as far as I can tell, doesn't necessarily understand that. Probably reasonable it could come to understand that, but doesn't seem to understand that. So what does she say about why doctors are quitting, um, sometimes reducing their hours, sometimes retiring early. She says, first, patients' expectations are unrealistic. Uh, medical systems fail them, et cetera. Um, the unrealistic expectations is that you have to, you know, you have to find these, the answer of what ails you or your doctor is an idiot, et cetera. You have to you know, expect doctors to be saviors in the world. Second, Patients value their research more than my opinion. And I'm, I've been guilty of this too. You go out there and you research on the internet and you go there and you start arguing with your doctor. Now I have a sense, at least myself, of when the doctor is really super knowledgeable and has basis for what he's saying versus not. But I am admitting that I think I'm wrong, that I've got myself down this whole, you know, I've gone down this, you know, I'll do a lot of research and care for myself train as well. Third, doctors are professionals making decisions of tremendous magnitude every day, yet we are treated like revenue generating widgets by our employers. Yeah, revenue generating widgets. Imagine that you're a professional and that's all you're treated as anymore in this system. And why is it? I mean, you know, let me just give you an analogy that I just thought of that I believe I probably heard from John Allison, you know, who worked in the banking industry. The more regulated an industry is, the more it is that the only people who can survive or the only entities that can survive are huge corporate entities. So, for example, John Allison would always talk about the fact that all of the small banks were put out of business. 
you know, basically, that they all had to merge or you know, be swallowed up by the bigger banks and stuff because the regulatory burden in the financial services industry was so huge that it could only be accommodated and still you know, have a company that's profitable if it was a huge bureaucratic company. And the same thing now is happening in medicine thanks to Obamacare and everything that came before it. This is why I believe that doctors are being treated like revenue generating widgets. The problem is, is that some doctors, if they're not philosophical and they're not thinking about these things because they'd rather just think about medicine, imagine that, you know, they're thinking, oh, it's just, it's all about dollars and companies are just about dollars. But what I'm saying is the only type of company that can survive in this environment are either just big ones who are scraping to survive. You know, they have to scrape to survive just under the burden or, What's worse sometimes is that the entities that are surviving the big conglomerate healthcare conglomerates are cronies, right? They're crony types. And so they're even worse because they don't want to treat human beings like human beings. They just want to get the latest government favor and they think that the doctors owe a debt to society and they shouldn't really care about making money or having a good lifestyle or anything else anyway. So that's number three. She says she doesn't want to be treated like a revenue-generating widget. Fourth, we spend more time charting and billing than we do talking to our patients. Yeah, that's what they're doing now, is they spend their whole time on stupid bureaucratic paperwork. And then number five, we spend a ridiculous amount of time trying to justify our prescriptions and imaging tests to insurance companies. They cannot just help you choose your health care anymore. Insurance is not insurance, remember, anymore. Insurance, it, it, insurance is illegal in our country. We do not have health insurance in our country anymore. We have this weird sort of prepaid voucher for health care you may or may not get. And the incentive is they want to take your money and give you as little health care as possible. That's how they have profits. Instead of, you know, what we would do in the past is we'd pay for most of things out of pocket and all the routine stuff out of pocket. And then only when we'd have these catastrophic conditions would we go to our insurance companies. Anyway, her conclusion, she says, I'm a highly educated, highly intelligent physician who knows more about endocrinology than 99.99% of the people on the planet. Yet my day is filled with patients doubting my advice and motivations, support departments thwarting my efforts to run my practice efficiently, senior leadership questioning my work ethic because my brain is not as valuable as surgeons' hands, monetarily, right? Insurance companies doubling my workload and a computer that hates me. And then she says that in her particular company, they're trying to get her to work Saturdays as well. And she is at this stage where, you know, if you keep pushing me, she says, my next move is out the door with my middle finger raised as I exit. This person's awesome. I totally want to meet this doctor. It'd be awesome. Um, Interesting in the comments, I was reading a bunch of the comments, and there's a lot of doctors in this boat saying, yeah, I'm trying to get myself to a point where I can afford to just quit and not work anymore and do something different. And there's all of these different places that are specializing in giving doctors financial advice so that they become financially independent and they can afford to quit. I saw some statistic that by 2020, there's going to be a shortage of 100,000 doctors in the United States. 
I think it's something like that. But here's an interesting thing, and I just want I'm not gonna go on too much longer about this, but I want to give you one comment from a patient, the very first comment on this blog post. Jody, I believe is the name. From the perspective of the patient, writes this commenter, from the perspective of the patient, numbers three, four, and five, which all have to do with the bureaucratic nature of healthcare and the fact that doctors can't spend time with patients, that she says, are, is a large part of the reason why you're seeing more of numbers one and two. Numbers one and two were the ones about like why patients don't really listen to doctors and why they are doing all of their own research. This commenter writes, patients know they are getting the short end of the stick when it comes to their doctor's time and attention, so they're venturing out on their own more to find answers, and the Internet gives them the, quote, tools to do it. The reality we're all dealing with is that the quality of healthcare in this country is declining relative to what we're paying for it, and patients and doctors are frustrated with a system that keeps getting worse for everyone. So this doctor, of course, acknowledged that yeah, that was that was a good point. That this is why we all I mean, first of all, the information is there, but the reason that we feel like we have to go seek that information is because we do know that our doctors are hogtied to use a little bit of a in invert Freudian slip there, right? Because I was talking about pig thyroid earlier. Uh, they are. They're hogtied, these doctors, more and more by the increasingly socialized, bureaucratized healthcare system that we have. We all know this. We know that our doctor's time and attention is being restricted. And so we feel like, oh, God, we have to pick up the slack. And like I said, it creates this huge market for so-called gurus, especially in prevalent conditions like thyroid. A whole bunch of people are having thyroid issues. So uh, that being said, kudos to this doctor for not only keeping up practice, but then taking the time to write such a rational blog to help people wade through all of the disinformation out there. As I said, I do recommend it if you know anybody with that. There's also a pretty funny post about um, in there about there's these clinics that they purport to help men uh, by having them supplement testosterone. There's like all these men's clinics and they don't have real doctors and they really mess up these guys' health and everything. If any, I mean, most people who listen to the show probably aren't in that realm, but if you're in that realm of like going to one of these men's clinics and being injected with a bunch of hormones and stuff, go check that post out too. It's pretty fun. <sighs> Now, what else have we got here? Sorry, I'm sighing, but I, this, is, this is worth sighing for because uh, it's ridiculous. Luca in the chat room says, when you say guru, all I can think of is some magic sorcerer or something, very much a mystic view. I'm telling you, Luca, I have been wading through some of this, and I've limited my exposure to it because it is completely overwhelming. So, for example, that Wentz book that I was looking at, She's got three different protocols, and the first one is detoxify your liver protocol. And the list of supplements alone, it's just totally what we call in objectivism crow-busting. It's just overwhelming the amount of detail that you are supposed to absorb and act upon according to one of these gurus. And thankfully, from what I can tell, it's not a, a really necessary thing. So I'm trying to sift through and say, okay, what is there actually evidence for? How much of this is just throwing something at the wall and hoping it sticks? And I 
like I said, I'm super thankful for a doctor who not only continues heroically practicing in this environment, but at the same time decides, you know, yeah, I'm going to go out there and make a blog as well. So I hope that she can figure out a way to continue sharing her knowledge, please, please, please. And at the same time, have the lifestyle that she deserves. That would be wonderful. So like I said, yeah, for me, um, anybody who was a little concerned when I was talking about my condition progressing, apparently it's not progressing. I can make a very simple tweak and undo some of the little thing that was going on with me. And the the other thing was like a routine thing. So I'm more on, I am still on cruise control like I thought I was. I may still want to figure out if I can do anything better to optimize my health with this dumb autoimmune thing, but it's not progressing. I've got it at least stable as far as I know. So that's awesome news. That's the good. So there's the good news of the health thing. I don't want to become some person who has to seek a whole bunch of medical attention in this environment where healthcare is getting more and more dicey. Okay. So let's go over. Don't let it go.com. What else do I have for you? Oh, what do I have? I'm actually getting at the half hour break. So what I'll do is as we're going to go on, what is our, topic. Oh, we're going to talk a little bit about Trump. We'll talk a little bit about Trump after a break, but we're going to minimize because I want to go into privacy and start talking about more positive things. But right after my little musical interlude, we'll talk about Trump a little bit and then the good stuff after that. Here we go. Okay, we are back. And as I said, the place to get the program notes is don'tletitgo.com. So run over there if you want to see the various things that I've got planned for us for the rest of the show. And if you want to call in and talk about anything, 760-888-5817 is the number where you can do so. Make sure if you are on the line and you do want to talk that you press 1 so that I can know that you're on the line and you actually want to say something as well. So I've got a few tweets over there in the program notes. That's another thing. Uh, Tweets will sometimes be the place that I've collected stuff that I'm going to want to talk about on the show. So you may see more and more embedded tweets in the program notes. Of course, if you follow me on Twitter, then you're already getting a preview of the stuff that's on my mind, stuff that I've been tweeting to Trump or whatever. And Trump, continues to tweet about the NFL, or at least he was doing so yesterday, and he was continuing to talk about what the policy of the NFL should be. Yesterday morning, quite early, he tweeted this. He says, the booing at the NFL football game last night when the entire Dallas team dropped to its knees was loudest I have ever heard. Great anger, he said. Now, I'm thinking I would have thought of this on my own anyway because I taught a lawn literature class in which one of the books that we had in the syllabus was George Orwell's 1984. So 1984 
is often at the forefront of mine. Of course, as a privacy person, Orwell's 84 is at the front of my mind. And not just because of the issue of privacy, but also the issue of totalitarian dictatorship and the way that it works and everything else. And if you've read 1984, you know that one of the things that happens in that is the two minutes hate. And one of my friends on Facebook, his name's Daniel, the day before Trump tweeted this, had made a comment on a different thread having to do with this NFL thing about, oh, just wait till they bring Goldstein in. And Goldstein is one of these characters with the two minutes hate. And I, um, you know, of course, I knew what he was talking about right away. And I forget what I commented back to it. But point being, it was at the forefront of my mind when I read this tweet the very next morning. So what's my response? Two minutes hate question mark. And I mean, think about this. If you're Trump, And the whole idea is you want to stir up the emotions of the masses. You want patriotism, right? Remember what he was calling for in his UN speech. He was calling for everybody to be patriotic and willing to sacrifice for their country and everything else. Here he is talking about the great anger, how wonderful it is, the great anger that people have when they are booing at football players dropping to their knees for whatever reason that they're doing it. Um, Fascinating, right, that this is what he's doing. So then, and it was really early, and I unfortunately woke up and then I saw this, because what it says like 3.35 in the morning my time. (laughs) I saw this. All I had at 3.35 was two minutes, eight, question mark, go back to sleep. And wake up again, he's still tweeting about it. He's still tweeting about things, so I went ahead and put this. But, you know, what's the point? What? Why... In 1984, was the two minutes hate there? The two minutes hate was, you know, partially there to allow the people who are subjugated under a horrible totalitarian dictatorship to allow them to vent the anger, but only at an approved target, of course. So, for example, if you're upset because Donald Trump and the Republicans are not repealing Obamacare, which I think that's something worthy of being upset about. Or if you're upset about anything else that the government is or isn't doing right now, isn't it great if they can redirect your anger toward these guys, these football players who are dropping to their knees during the anthem for whatever reason, which is just not important. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Vent that anger and he's going to stoke it. And of course, when he goes out and he does his rallies, he does all that too. So that, is you know the the sort of thing i think he's kind of distracting and along those lines as well you can look at the talk about north korea and whether we're going to have this war with north korea so i was also tweeting about this about say how's that war with east asia that's what they call it and uh, or call one of the sides there's east asia and eurasia who's the enemy of the moment and it always switches and everything this is part of the dictator's method is to direct your anger toward some enemy that might not even really be a threat at the moment. So here, how's the war with East Asia? Oh, I mean, North Korea going. That's where those jokes are coming out of because 1984, these are the techniques that a dictator or would-be dictator tries to use to either stir up the masses, the anger of the masses, or redirects it distracts from the job that they're doing and things like that. So take it for what it's worth. 
And along the line as well, I've put in the program notes the quotation from the Ominous Parallels, Leonard Peikoff's book, Ominous Parallels, that I was referencing the other day. This was apparently said by Adolf Hitler to Hermann Rauschen, who wrote a book, and I forget the title of the book, but if you look at Ominous Parallels, this is on page 47, I've put it in a little purple meme that I stuck in there. Purple was my flower color of the day. That's why I chose purple that day. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty. You can read the, the white text against it if you go check out, like I said, check out the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Go over there. See my pretty purple meme. Here's the quotation. Quote, at a mass meeting, thought is eliminated. And because this is the state of mind I require, because it secures to me the best sounding board for my speeches, I order everyone to attend the meetings where they become part of the mass, whether they like it or not. Quote, intellectuals and bourgeois, as well as workers. I mingle the people. I speak to them only as the mass. End quote. If you think about this, of course, you could say in a way he's sort of speaking to the mass all the time when he's doing it on Twitter, getting people stirred up. A lot of people are stirred up. I had some guy just yesterday tweet something sort of vaguely maybe threatening. Our paths will, quote, intersect. What's that garbage? Uh, Trump fans get really incensed when you criticize Trump. Their emotions are very stirred up by this guy. He's stirring up. Where else, of course, like I said, he's stoking the flame of all the people who are angry at the NFL players for kneeling. And when he's at his rallies and he's talking about, you know, what should happen and this person should be fired. And remember the whole thing about, you know, Hillary for prison and all of that too. Maybe Hillary does deserve to have something happened to her but you know the the stirring up of the emotions is something that he is quite good at how applicable that's going to end up being to him as time goes on i will leave you to ponder for yourself one thing that was kind of funny and it was going around on twitter but i didn't give you any tweet here i I retweeted a tweet about this apparently there was some guy i forget who it was there were these different candidates who were up in a special election, Republicans. And he was going out on a limb and supporting some of them and, and trying to get you guys to vote for him. And one of the guys, he one of the guys won and then the other guy lost. And the guy who lost, apparently Trump went back and deleted the tweets that he was tweeting out there in support of the guy who lost, which is kind of funny because he hardly ever deletes his tweets. So when he does delete the tweets, it's just funny to notice which tweets he, de- he deletes. I've seen him delete tweets if he's made an error. So, you know, some sort of typo. And then he goes back and fixes it in the next tweet or something. That's understandable. But this is this is more than a typo. He was going out there supporting this guy and that it's gone. So there was, you know, one guy won, another guy lost. And then, of course, they have failed to even pass something remotely like a repeal of Obamacare. And Immediately, what does Trump do to try to get everybody excited again about something, you know, some legislative victory that he's going to have? A new tax plan. And, oh gosh, I'm going to get in my ear of a video of, of Trump revealing his tax plan at one of his rallies, getting people excited about it. Headline from New York Times Trump hails tax plan as, quote, revolutionary change for the middle class. 
I was scanning the article earlier, and it looks like a lot of the details still haven't been determined. And in fact, he is letting a lot of the blanks be filled in by Congress. But some of it sounds like it might be a change for the better if it could actually get through. It's really early. He just unveiled it. He's trying to get everybody excited about it. Some good stuff might come of it. It would be really nice for our tax code to be simpler. It would be nice for the tax rates to be lower. But as usual, it's a mixed bag. It's not done on principle at all. And I will prove that to you if I can go ahead and find that quotation from Trump again, because, of course, he's apologizing all over the place for it and making sure that you know that the rich are not going to benefit from it. In an earlier version of this piece, I swear, the New York Times is changing the headlines and the order in which it presents the article throughout the day. They're just constantly editing these things. So... Let me see what we've got here. I mean, they're talking about, like I said, lowering rates. They're talking about eliminating certain deductions. And the nice thing about eliminating deductions, right? What do deductions do? Deductions nudge behavior. All of this is, in effect, which direction is the government gun pointed in? And if you benefit from a deduction, they, they're basically telling you, if you engage in this behavior then the gun won't be pointed quite as directly as you as much as it was before. And what is it, you know, there's all sorts of disincentives that it creates in the market. Sometimes it creates bubbles depending on what it is that they're doing. But what's the, you know, what, what are they doing? The full throttle, uh, full throttle slosh, uh, slosh, sorry, full throttle push says the New York times to slash taxes and salvage what is left of his foundering legislative agenda in Congress. This is what Trump is doing, according to New York Times. New York Times is loving this, by the way. You know, they want Trump to fail. They don't want him to be able to pass anything. They're going to love it if Trump ends up compromising with the Democrats and instituting some sort of single-payer thing, which we know Trump is probably open to doing if he has to, if he has to get some sort of legislative victory. He's proposing a politically challenging array of tax cuts because they, you know, New York Times doesn't like tax cuts. Proposing a politically challenging array of tax cuts for individuals and businesses that would constitute the most sweeping changes to the federal tax code in decades. How I read this, if it's politically challenging, New York Times doesn't like it, it's probably pretty decent. Wouldn't it be nice if it could be passed? Mr. Trump writes the Times, smarting from the latest defeat this week of his efforts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, cast his tax plan as an economic imperative and the fulfillment of a promise to his coalition of working class supporters to deliver benefits in the form of lower taxes, better jobs, and higher wages. But, writes the Times, the president offered few details about how working people might benefit from a plan that has explicit and substantial rewards for wealthy people and corporations including the elimination of taxes on large inheritances and deep reductions in the rates paid by businesses large and small. So go back and translate this, right? Substantial rewards for wealthy people. Okay, the reward is 
that they're not going to be stolen from as much. That is what the New York Times is classifying as a reward. You know, as well as I do, that this language is completely perverse when they're talking about this. Quote from Trump, this is a revolutionary change and the biggest winners will be middle class workers as jobs start pouring into our country, as companies start competing for American labor and as wages continue to grow, Mr. Trump told hundreds of supporters in a nondescript building at the Indiana State Fairgrounds, quote, this will be the lowest top marginal income rate for small and mid-sized businesses in more than 80 years, end quote. That sounds decent, right? It's probably still not at the lowest level in the world. I, it, it, to me, it's unfathomable that supposedly we are the greatest country in the history of the world, that we do not have the lowest tax rate for businesses, that if you look at business economic freedom indices, that we're pretty far down. I I can't remember if we're like 15 or more in the 30 range or something. Other countries kick our butt in terms of economic freedom for businesses. And that's pitiful. I mean, that's really pitiful. You want to talk about why jobs go overseas, because we aren't treating business right here. Writes the Times, whatever the economic effects, the political stakes, stakes of the plan were unmistakable for a president who is desperate to score a legislative win before his first year in office draws to a close. I mean, it is true. He doesn't have a big legislative win. Nothing that he's really promised except for the, when was he done? He has uh, reduced the amount of regulatory burden in the energy industry, which is very, very good, right? We need, we all need energy. We need access to reliable energy sources and, and more cheaply if we're going to power an economy. So that is good. Uh, the other good thing that he doesn't get quite as much credit, credit for because any Republican would have done it is appoint Gorsuch. Gorsuch was at the top of the Supreme Court appointee list for any Republican who came into office. But yeah, okay, at least he did it. He was able to get it done. I don't think it was too big of a challenge. Got it done. Awesome. But he has no big legislative win. He hasn't repealed Obamacare, uh, replaced it with anything. Is he going to be able to do this? It is too soon to tell. Of course, the New York Times seems to want him to fail, but that's you know, no big surprise. And they talk about harsh political realities that the tax plan faces. I mean, they really want him to fail. And he is Trump trying to get Democrats to support the plan. Republican congressional leaders and senior White House officials have said privately they expect to use special budget rules that would allow them to get the bill through Congress without Democratic support. Again, quoting from Trump, there is no reason that Democrats and Republicans in Congress should not come together to deliver this giant win for the American people and begin the middle class miracle once again, end quote, Mr. Trump said. You know, it's a miracle. It's funny that you have to use the language miracle when all you're talking about is removing force from the equation, removing force from the relationship between you and your government. Your government is not stealing as much of your money And you can actually live a better life and be more productive, have a a better economy. That's a miracle. It shouldn't be termed in those ways. Uh, They're talking about, you know, it's it's good. One of of the 
allies of this plan says it's not just the house plan it's a unified framework you know, they're all working together so somehow that's going to be better and then of course the democrats are coming in and saying this is not just all about the middle class it's going to benefit the rich and everybody else uh, that was a quotation from ron wyden from oregon the democrat and that's not surprising what i'm looking for is in an earlier version of this article there was a quotation from Trump talking about the effect of his plan on the rich. But I think since the last time I was looking at it, he gave a talk on it and they've moved it entirely. And I have to see if I can find that quotation from him again. They say it's aggressive and very pro growth with the rate reductions. And no, they've cut this out. So there was a quotation from Trump earlier and I'm going to have to find it again. Um, he was apologizing, in effect, for the cuts and saying it, it's not really for the middle class, that he personally, as a rich person, is not going to benefit very much. You know, it's, it's not for the rich. And, you know, again, Trump does not have any principled sense of the fact that when you earn money, it is yours, that if the government is taking it from you through the system and voluntary taxation, that that is theft and that you shouldn't be apologizing. The other language that was in the earlier version of this article that I wanted to highlight for you and I haven't been able to find again is that the New York Times was talking about the fact that there are so many blanks to fill in that Congress and Senate was going to have to fill in the blanks with regard to this legislation. And they used the same tired language about how is this going to, quote, be paid for? How is this going to be paid for? And that is ridiculous to me you know, when they talk about, well, we cannot, quote, afford to let you keep as much of your money. That, you know, the, we're not going to afford, be able to afford to let you keep more of your money. We've heard Trump talk earlier about the fact that if the rates on the rich need to go up, then they will. He is talking about the top rate for businesses, the top marginal rate for businesses to go down. But I can't see in this version of the article at all what the top rate on individuals is going to be. Is he going to throw rich individual taxpayers in America under the bus in order to woo Democrats and the New York Times and everybody else? Let's see here. Okay. On the individual side. Here, I found it. Found it. The plan would collapse the tax brackets from seven to three. Now, that's nice, right? Anytime that they can simplify the tax code, that's good. So if you can go from seven brackets to three and spend less time trying to figure out how much tax you're supposed to pay, reduce the bureaucratic paperwork burden, that's awesome. So what are the tax rates going to be? 12%, 25%, and 35%. So it is going to go down for the top of the individuals. The current top rate is 39.6%. The lowest rate right now is 10%. So actually, the if you're in the lowest bracket, yours is going to go up a little bit. Is that going to survive politically? I don't know. 25, obviously, somewhere in the middle. 35 is the top. Is he going to be able to get that through? They say, oh, here we go. The framework also gives Congress the option of creating a higher fourth rate above the 35% to ensure that the rich are paying their fair share. 
says, but it does not specify what income levels would be associated with the higher rate, what the new rate might be, or explicitly direct Congress to implement a fourth bracket. So it's just he's leaving this to Congress. And remember earlier, Trump was quoted as saying that if the rate on the richest Americans has to go up, it has to go up. Oh, well, he's leaving it to them just to get it done. And if he needs to throw you as the richest people under the bus, he's going to throw you under the bus. Okay, that's him. Um, Okay, enough about Trump. I would say that's enough about Trump for today. Um, All of you enthusiastic Trump supporters out there, you make of that what you will. It's way too early to see what's going to happen to this. It's going to maybe benefit some Americans and might benefit the country overall. It's not going to do it on principle. And again, like I said earlier, there was a quotation from Trump essentially saying, oh, no, no, my tax plan is good. It doesn't benefit the rich. It doesn't benefit me. He is not principled about people being able to keep their own money. It's all, like I said, about satisfying demand. There's an interesting piece from New York Times. I'm changing the subject entirely. I'm going to leave Trump alone. Uh, There's an interesting piece from New York Times. Stuart Hayashi reminded me of it this morning. I was going to talk about it anyway. I had it in some email that I'd sent myself to remind me to talk about it. Opinion piece from New York Times a couple days ago. How did women fare in China's communist revolution? As far as I know, at least, oh, you know what they did out on Twitter? I think on Twitter what they did is they quoted from the very end of the piece. For all its flaws, the communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big. And that was out on Twitter. They were promoting you to read the piece. We've seen New York Times be an apologist and a shill for socialism. This piece is not unequivocally that, although the way that they were putting it out there on Twitter, it made it sound like, yeah, communism taught women to dream big. And so at least there's that. In the piece, they talk about the fact that how um, unintuitive it is or just, just you know, how unexpected it would be given the fact that the women under communism tended to praise it a lot, but at the same time, the reality of their lifestyle was pretty bleak. And so this one researcher was actually surprised to say, you know, how can you speak so well of your life under communism and yet your actual quality of life, what you had to do on a daily basis was not very good. Um, so, for example, when they talk about, you know, what it was like for women in China, this then the, the op-ed opinion writer to whom I should give credit is Helen Gao, writes, when historians research the collectivization of the Chinese countryside in the 1950s, an event believed to have empowered rural women by offering them employment, they discovered a complicated picture. While women indeed contributed enormously to collective farming, they rarely rose to positions of responsibility. They remained outsiders in communes organized around their husband's family and village relationships. Studies also showed that women routinely performed physically demanding jobs but earned less than men since the lighter, more valued tasks involving large animals or machinery were usually reserved for men. The urban workplace was hardly more inspiring. 
Women were shunted to collective neighborhood workshops with meager pay and dismal working conditions, while men were more commonly employed in comfortable big industry and state enterprise jobs. Party cadre's explanations for this reflected deeply entrenched gender prejudices. Women have a weaker constitution and a gentler temper, rendering them unfit for the strenuous tasks of operating heavy equipment or manning factory floors. The party at times, Gao writes, paid lip service to the equal sharing of domestic labor, but in practice, it condoned women's continuing subordination in the home. In posters and speeches, female socialist icons were portrayed as, quote, iron women who labored heroically in front of steel furnaces while maintaining a harmonious family. But it was a cherry-picking approach that focused exclusively on bringing women into the workforce and neglected their experiences in other realms. Visitors to rural areas saw women toiling around the clock, cooking, mending clothes, and feeding livestock after finishing a day of work in the fields. And it goes on like that. So they were puzzled that, you know, how could it be that Chinese women could be so effusive about their life under communism, and yet this is it. Marjorie Wolf Gao writes, who was an anthropology professor at the University of Iowa, was was surprised by how effusive Chinese women were about the miracle of female emancipation in the very presence of their continued oppression. Quote from Wolf, It was easy to take gender equality, an ideal that was widely promoted, as the reality, and regard problems as reminiscent of old systems and ideology that would erode with time said Professor, oh, actually this is from a different um, professor, Professor Zhang, a sociologist. So, um, you know, New York Times is actually being objective here. They don't tell you the negative aspect of it in the headline, you know, how did women fare? They just leave it open. And then, but like I said, in the, in the tweet, it made it sound like, well, you know, even though there are some challenges that helped women to dream big, Dreaming is not going to help you if the reality is that when the government gun is pointed in everybody's face like it is under a totalitarian dictatorship, what's going to happen? You're going to scapegoat. You're going to just operate on your old prejudices. Everybody's under hardship. There's no way that you're going to have the mental space to grow out of the old so you know, so-called patriarchy and everything else. Yeah, the system, they had to make everybody work. Of course, they had to make everybody work. So they wanted everybody to go into the workplace because otherwise everybody would starve under communism. Not not surprising. Anyway, so you know, at the conclusion here, what's the paragraph for all its flaws? Communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big. When it came to advice for my mother, my grandmother applauded her daughter's decision to go to her graduate school and urged her to find a husband who would be supportive of her career. She still seems to think that the new market economy with its meritocracy and freedom of choice will finally allow women to be masters of their minds and actions. After all, she always said to my mother, quote, you have more opportunities. So, yeah, you have more opportunities to go work in the workplace and they at least give lip service to equality. But because everybody is impoverished, then all you're doing now is you're working out in the home and you're still doing everything 
that you were doing in the home before as well. And it, it's hardly a better life. So yeah, the piece is somewhat objective. It's much better than that old piece. If you remember several weeks ago, I talked about the piece that they had in the New York Times where women said, oh, sex is so much better under socialism. And I've got Benjamin's funny meme again in the program notes you can check out from Bernie Sanders telling us about the great sex that you can have in Venezuela while the country is collapsing under socialism around you. Harry in the chat room says, this sounds like Marxist propaganda, the oppressed sounding happy. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in some ways, maybe because they you know, the, the life is so miserable for them. They have to believe that there's hope for the future. Otherwise, they can't go on. And so they're clinging on to the rhetoric, the party rhetoric that women are equal or iron, whatever it was that I was quoting you a second ago. These, you know, these women who are just powerhouses and able to go, go, go. But give me a, you know, a Dagny Taggart going around the clock any day versus one of those women that's enslaved under under socialism. So there we are. That's latest. It's just kind of funny to see the New York Times continue to try, even when they they are publishing, and they do, they publish things that are surprisingly balanced or sometimes pieces from the other side. So I'll continue to give New York Times kudos when they deserve it. And I mean, kudos at least is a balanced piece and substance. But it was funny that in the tweet they chose to highlight, well, at least to encourage women to, to dream big. Why? Dreams are all you have under communism. That that's all you've got is is dreams. And yeah, they're giving them a little bit of a carrot. There's a little bit of free market here or there in China. It remains to be seen whether the current strategy of business leaders and people in our government right now of of trading with China, whether that's actually going to have an effect in increasing freedom in China for the people or if we are perpetuating the enslavement over there. We we don't know. We don't know. Anyway, we'll keep watching that. We'll keep watching the New York Times. Like I said, the New York Times, very, very biased in the direction of socials. And there was one piece I was trying to find, you know, sometimes when people share stuff out on Twitter, it's actually going to change because Twitter is going to give you some more characters now. But sometimes people will when they are bumping up against the 140 character word limit, they will do a screenshot of something and then they'll just be sharing this screenshot. And somebody shared a screenshot of some piece that the New York times had. And I assume it was relatively recent and it was about how, if you ask people around the country, most people agree with tenets of socialism. And so therefore socialism isn't so bad and we should all consider socialism. New York times has been a shill for socialism and communism. I could not find that piece. I spent at least 10 minutes, I think, trying to find it. I was searching on New York Times website. Thank you to those of you who support the show and give me my subscription to New York Times. I find it quite valuable. Uh, Yeah, I was searching, could not find this particular piece. There's so much about socialism in, in the Times. I couldn't sift through and find it. If you guys ever find it where the Times is talking about, oh, well, you know, everybody around the country agrees with all the different tenets or, or um, you know, implementation, all the different policy pieces of socialism. So therefore, we shouldn't think socialism is that bad. Everybody wants it anyway. I would love to find that piece. No. 
We've got somebody new in the chat room, not sure what they're contributing yet. Yeah, 35% is the top individual rate for the taxes. And what about the mystic surcharge on high earning people? Yeah, we just we don't know what the bill is going to be on higher earning people under this Trump tax plan. I think he's leaving it to the politicians, whatever it is that they feel they have to pass. Okay, quick musical interlude back, and we get to focus on privacy. Okay, everyone, I am back, and I have one recent court ruling, which is a very promising thing, something we do want to celebrate, and then an upcoming case that we're going to be listening to at the Supreme Court. It's going to be heard sometime in the next few weeks. First is this, published September 21st, and thanks to Steve Richens on Twitter for sending me this. He actually sent me two different versions of this same you know, two different pieces of coverage of this same ruling, which made me think that there was more than one, but there's just one recent new ruling, but it's quite promising. It's this DC court rules tracking phones without a warrant is unconstitutional. And what they're talking about is this so-called stingray technology. Do you guys know what stingray technology is? Stingray technology. See if you guys in the chat room know anything about it. What it is, is what the government does is sets up a device that mimics the, you know, appearance of a cell phone tower. So they call it a cell site simulator. And the reason, of course, it's Stingray is why? Because your phone connects to it without your awareness or knowledge. And then suddenly this thing is gathering information from your phone. And in the past, I was aware that it could get GPS location data, maybe other types of metadata from your phone. But as I understand it, some of these devices are actually getting some of the content of conversations as well. So, These devices are a problem. There was a ruling, a fairly recent ruling, but it was last year, about a year ago, in which another court said that if the government wants to use this Stingray device, this device that pretends that it's a cell phone tower um, and is going to collect information from your phone, any information that a regular cell phone tower would be able to collect, that the government needs a warrant, that this would be a search for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. So for those of you who haven't thought about this issue for a while, Fourth Amendment was, say, for a warrant to issue, there has to be probable cause, they say supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Two things that we always talk about in this realm, you know, we talk about what should happen. Before you have a search, then you have to have probable cause 
and also particularized suspicion. You have to have reason to believe that the search that you're going to be doing is going to yield information about a crime, some sort of evidence of a crime. And it has to be particularized suspicion that the target that you're going after is the right target for, for some reason. And as you know, this whole area has been really messed up. The government has been collecting all sorts of what we call bulk metadata on the grounds that they don't need warrants, supposedly, in this space. There's no probable cause, no particular suspicion. And they were doing this not only with the routine, you know, that Verizon routinely hands over your data and everything else, but moreover, they were doing it with respect to this Stingray technology, which is not even, you know, Verizon, a company collecting this information as a normal part of their doing business. That's what Snowden revealed, right? What this is, is the government setting up or turning on this device, which, by the way, in one of these two articles that, that Steve shared with me, it, yeah, they talk about how much of our tax dollars have been used to pay for these devices that are violating our rights. This is the CBS News article that I have linked to in, in the program notes. It says, a December 2016 report from the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee found U.S. taxpayers, you and I, spent $95 million on 434 cell site simulator devices between 2010 and 2014, with the price tag for a single device hovering around half a million dollars. So they're spending our money, and then they go out there and deploy these devices and violate your rights. So that's what they're doing with your tax dollars. And what this court in the D.C. Circuit is saying, this is, uh, yeah, yeah let's, let's see exactly who it is. So it's the, yeah, the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Court of Appeals. And the analogy that one of the articles was saying is that this is sort of like a state Supreme Court. The D.C. Court of Appeals said Thursday, last Thursday, that you need to have a warrant. You have to have probable cause and particularized suspicion in order to be able to use a cell site simulator to gather data from a cell phone. And let me go, because I think, I think the other article that I have on this, that was the CBS one. I think the other one is the one that talks about the type of information that can be gathered from it. And this is the Ars Technica article. Um, the use of device, also known as a stingray, it's unconstitutional. And the judges also said in this case that the violation is so egregious, any evidence that was derived from the stingray should be excluded from the case, which overturned a criminal conviction for this particular person. One thing I haven't really written about in years, but early on I had decided that I was against this idea of the so-called exclusionary rule. Yes, on the one hand, our government has violated the Fourth Amendment, right? It's violated our rights under the Fourth Amendment. But should criminal information be excluded? Should that be the remedy that is applied? Should you overturn a criminal conviction? So, for example, they were talking about 
maybe there wasn't a proper warrant for some of the evidence that was collected in the O.J. Simpson case. So O.J. committed a horrible murder, as far as I know. It's, as far as I know, probably he did and got away with it. Everybody jokes about it. Is it really true? Leave it up to you. That's the expression of opinion on this show is that there's some chance that it was true. So suppose it was true that he committed that horrible, disgusting double murder. And then you say, well, we're not going to convict him. We're going to overturn the conviction because the evidence that was collected was in the violation of, of the Fourth Amendment. The way it used to be is that they wouldn't exclude the evidence. Instead, what they would do is they would allow who whoever's rights were violated to sue the government for trespass. Because if you think about it, if what the you know if the government is not getting a proper warrant and is searching you your property your possessions it's committing some sort of a trespass on you or your your property and so that's that used to be the remedy there was a book called fourth amendment first principles i believe is what it was called by the author akil amar a m a r is the last name law professor at Harvard last time I knew about him. And, and years ago, years ago, we, uh, when I was working for Leonard Peikoff's radio show, we interviewed him and it was a really fun interview. Probably you can find that somewhere. Very rational on, on the first, excuse me, on the fourth amendment. And he talked about the fact that it used to be, you didn't have an exclusionary rule. The remedy was lawsuit in trespass that would be the remedy that you would still allow good evidence of a, you know, of, of a crime. You'd still allow that in. You'd still allow the conviction. So here the, the case was called Prince Jones versus United States. It joins a recent string of judgments from around the country that concluded that stingrays are a search under the fourth amendment, right? This is the whole thing is something a search because once something is a search, then that means you need a warrant. If you don't, then there's been a violation. Quote, a person's awareness that the government can locate and track him or uh, use his or her cell phone data, likewise should not be sufficient to negate the person's otherwise legitimate expectation of privacy, end quote. Let me translate this a little because this is a very unintuitive area of the law. There's actually this thing in Fourth Amendment law, and, and some of the cases have been holding things like this, that if you are aware that the government can get information about you in a certain way, like you're aware, for example, that the government regulates in a certain area such that the company with whom you share the information is going to turn that information over to the government, if you're aware of that, then your reasonable expectation of privacy is d diminished and this language, this reasonable expectation of privacy language has been used in Fourth Amendment cases to define when there has been a search. So it's really perverse, right? If the government doesn't want the thing that it's doing to be counted as a search, then they just pass a bunch of legislation or publicize the fact that you're not going to have privacy in a certain area, and then suddenly boom, it's not reasonable for you to expect privacy anymore. So they make it sort of a foretold conclusion. Your expectation of privacy is not going to be reasonable, and therefore 
they are hoping that the court's not going to treat something as a search. And this court, this D.C. Court of Appeals is saying, no, we're not buying it. Government, you cannot get away with decreeing that certain things are or are not a search simply by using this reasonable expectation of privacy language. The old case that I used to read about this, and I mean, it was just ridiculous. There was uh, a bunch of regulations of barber shops. And in a particular state, the state government people could go and they could inspect the barber shops. And there was this one barber shop where they were advertising that it was really private. And so in particular, there's men who go to barber shops and they wear toupees or whatever. And if they have to go get a haircut at a barber shop, of course, what has to happen, the toupee has to be removed and then, you know, cut the hair that you have apart from the toupee and then I guess put it back on. And a number of men, they don't want to be just out in the open, you know, the person who walks by on the street can watch and everything. So this one barbershop was trying to advertise there's these private booths and everything else. And the question was, you know, does somebody have a reasonable expectation of privacy against the government people coming in and inspecting what's going on in these private booths? And a court tried to say, no, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy for what's going on in here. Why? Because we have a regulation, a state regulation of barbershops that says that the state flunky can come and inspect at whatever time. And so, so sorry, any expectation of privacy you have is gone by fiat, by decree, by the state. So I like this ruling even more here because the the court is saying here that your awareness that government can locate and track you is not sufficient to negate your otherwise legitimate expectation of privacy. So the fact that you don't believe you have privacy anymore in the world doesn't mean that this court at least is not going to protect you in your privacy. And I think that's exactly the right result. It is ridiculous that the government can say, Hey, we're watching you. And then therefore you're supposed to say, Oh, okay. I don't need to have privacy anymore. Oh, they're having debates about socialism and stuff in, in the chat room here. This is good news. People, this is a court of appeals standing up for your privacy, which I think is a wonderful thing. It's something that we can all applaud. Now, let me see what else. Oh yeah. So, what What is the danger of these stingrays? What has this court protected you against? Ars Technica, they say, as ours has long reported, stingrays can be used to determine a mobile phone's location by spoofing a cell tower, pretending to be a cell tower. In some cases, they say, stingrays can also intercept calls and text messages. Now, this is something I didn't know before. I knew about stingrays, I, you know, because I heard about the ruling last year that they could get your location and everything. But they're saying once deployed, the devices, Stingrays, intercept data from a target phone along with information from other phones within the vicinity. And see, that's the thing. What has come up in the past, too, is that, yeah, there's a target phone, and often they would. They'd get a court order to target a particular phone, and then they'd set up the Stingray, and the Stingray, I guess, can't discriminate, or maybe the police don't bother to make it discriminate, you know, they, oh, we, we can't, we don't have the technology to have particularized suspicion. We just throw it out there. So they put this out there 
And then they collect a whole bunch of other cell phone data in this vicinity as part of targeting one person who's there. And then, oops, wow, look what we collected. Oh, maybe you evaded your taxes or something. We're going to come after you for tax evasion. And then suddenly you're hauled into tax court or something, right? That would be horrible. So this is great. This is, like I said, the second ruling that I know of that stingrays, the use of a stingray requires a warrant, requires probable cause, requires particularized suspicion. The penalty is steeper in this one, as they're noting. They're using the exclusionary rule. Maybe in the last one I hadn't heard about the exclusionary rule. I don't agree with the exclusionary rule, but I am very happy to have a you know, a government agent have an incentive to require probable cause and particularized suspicion before engaging in a search. So then what's coming up? What's coming up is the Carpenter case. And we've talked just a little bit about the Carpenter case, but it's about to be heard before the Supreme Court. So as we lead up to that, we're going to get a bit more excited about it. Um, Oh, you know, I cannot find it in my current set of program notes. I'm wondering, I'm thinking that when I did update it, maybe I didn't save it. Oh, yeah, no, here it is. Okay, current version of program notes does have it. Verizon, yes, Verizon just stood up for your privacy. This is an article from Wired, and it was published in August. And what they're talking about here is you've got 14 U.S. tech companies getting together, filing a brief with the Supreme Court supporting more rigorous warrant requirements for law enforcement when they are looking for certain cell phone data, such as location information. Now, this is different from the Stingray scenario, right? Because the Stingray scenario is the government setting up a device that spoofs, that impersonates a phone company device and then just gets the information This case, the Carpenter case, is about government getting the information about your cell cell phone, your cell phone data, from your service provider, from the company. Um, So getting the information away from a stingray. Signatories to this brief, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft argue that the government leans on outdated laws from the 1970s to justify Fourth Amendment overreach. One perhaps surprising voice in the chorus of protesters is Verizon. So they're saying Verizon, largest wireless service provider in the U.S. and a powerful force in Silicon Valley, has bucked a longtime trend of telecom acquiescence. While carriers have generally been willing to comply with a broad range of government requests, even building out extensive infrastructure to aid surveillance, Verizon has this time joined with academics, analysts, and the company's more privacy-focused corporate peers. So I think that's good news. What I want to look at is I would like to look at the content of this brief and see how watered down it is. Because... Those of you who have listened to me on this issue, you know that I think ultimately if we're going to actually, quote, legalize privacy in the United States, if we're going to make it possible for you to achieve true privacy, we need to get rid of this so-called third-party doctrine. And right now it is the third-party doctrine that is enabling 
the government to get information about you from these companies without a warrant. Third-party doctrine says once you share information with a third party, you no longer have reasonable or, in the other terms, the better terms, you don't have a legitimate expectation of privacy in it anymore. And if you don't have a legitimate expectation of privacy in that information, then it's not a search, according to this doctrine. It is not a search when the government obtains the information from Google, Apple, Facebook, Verizon, Microsoft, whatever. Um, no probable cause required, no particularized suspicion required. Sometimes you are protected by some legislation that requires that there's some sort of court order. But in any of these realms, they have not required the stringent probable cause particularized suspicion that would be required if, if it fell under the warrant requirement. I believe that the only proper solution to this issue is that you need to get rid of this doctrine entirely. And what I fear is that, especially if you see Verizon joining on, and Verizon has been an apologist and has not stood up for privacy in the past, what I fear is that it's going to be watered down. They're going to say, okay, well, let's keep the third-party doctrine, but let's, you know, tweak it a little bit here and there. We need to have all of this stuff come back under the Fourth Amendment. The mere fact that I share something with a third party for a limited purpose of getting cell phone service, for example, or of connecting with friends on Facebook, for example, or in, even engaging in banking. You know, banking is one of the areas traditionally covered under the third party doctrine. These are the outdated laws from the 70s that they're talking. It's so funny. It's, outdated laws from the 70s. It makes me feel so old, but you know, outdated laws from the 70s. Uh, what is true is that in the 1970s, when they first applied this doctrine in the realm of banking records and telephone records, nobody at that point anticipated the, the far-reaching ramifications that it would have. Today, just think about it. As, you know, what is your life like? And this is the thought experiment that I do at the beginning of the book that I'm going to publish soon, I hope. Um, think about how much information you share with third parties on a daily basis just to live your life in the awesome, technologically aided, convenient, connected way that you do all day long as you walk around. And everybody's a little different depending on what kind of services you use. If your employer connects, you know, collects information as you enter and leave the premises and, you know, what sort of information the doctors and when you shop and do you shop with your credit card or not and everything else. Just think about in an average day in order to make your life easier, better, more awesome how much information you share with third parties. YouTube, I always talk about, you know, thanks to the YouTube gods for selecting, you know, and, and suggesting to me new music to listen to or just new cuts, say, from the Jezebels. There's some awesome live performances from the, the you know, from the Jezebels that YouTube has suggested to me. And, and I love it. I love being able to watch this. Your life is made better, more convenient, richer, it's part of life today to share information with third parties. And according to this doctrine, this third-party doctrine, every single time you share information with a third party, 
you lose Fourth Amendment protection for it. That is ridiculous. You know, and, and what are we doing? We're just sharing it for this limited purpose of gaining a benefit. It's pursuant to some sort of implicit contractual relationship that you have with your phone company, with Facebook, with YouTube, whatever. And ideally what would happen is your right of contract would serve as the protection for the privacy between there. And the government could only invade that relationship you have with the company by getting a warrant. That's how it should be handled. I fear that in this brief that they're not handling it that way. By the way, if I know that some people who listen to this show are working for tech companies. I have people from Google, from Facebook, from Apple and stuff who listen. If people would ever like me to come and speak to the policy principles at your company, I would welcome the opportunity to explain to them exactly why this third-party doctrine needs to be repealed entirely. It would be nice to see that. There's a chance that the Supreme Court is going to scale it back significantly, whether it's going to do it in a principled way, I am not sure. Uh, thanks to Johnny Lee for talking up my course on legalizing privacy, why and how. It gives you a good overview of the whole space. And um, a little bit of good news, sort of, out of Saudi Arabia. They're going to allow women to drive. As Iowa Hawk on Twitter says, I would have preferred that they stop stoning gay people to death, but, you know, yeah, allowing women to drive is, is a nice thing. Twitter is going to give us more characters to use, those of us in a sort of character challenge language like English are going to get, I think, 280 now, so we can see maybe an expansion of Ayn Rand bot tweets out there that I'm going to have to work on and, and give to you guys. And finally, as I said, Katy Perry, she's getting some decent reviews for her new tour. It sounds like quite the spectacle, quite the show that she's putting on. I've got the title track witness over there at the blog for you to check out. If she's coming to you, it might be worth it. If you like her songs and stuff, it sounds like you'd enjoy it. Okay. I'll talk to you guys next Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 noon Pacific time. Until then, take care.